So 2 Samuel chapter 13, there is uh, a tendency in certain parts of our society, in certain settings and scenarios, to offer what's sometimes called a trigger warning or a content warning. Uh, you may be wondering why I'm bringing that up now after 2 Samuel 11. I mean, really? And part of that's because we know what happens with David and Bathsheba, right? That's a familiar story to us. That's uh, something that preachers go to often when they want an example of gross sin coupled with an example of God's grace and forgiveness. But we don't often continue that through the next several chapters of 2 Samuel. And as Nathan told David would happen, as David's sin and its consequences begin to work their way out in the family, we see a depth of human depravity in a level of detail that the scriptures don't often bring to the surface with the kind of brutality that we'll see in this chapter and the next several. People talk about how, you know, maybe the Old Testament should be R-rated. I mean, look at the things it has in it, rape and murder and killing and, you know, sacrifice and all these kinds of things. And, and of course, Hollywood and producers have, have taken their own angle on trying to, to glory in some of those things. But when scripture brings those things to the fore, it never glories in it. It, it, scripture never delights in the sinfulness of sin. God will bring to mind and bring to the surface and discuss, frankly, the, the grossness of our sin and its consequences. But it's never a description of that sin that encourages us to delight in it or that entices us with it or holds it up as something that's lovely. If we think about the way our culture and the media in our culture portrays human sin, it often tries to make it enticing and inviting. But as, as scripture at times finds it necessary to show us the rawness and the evil of sin, it never does so in a way that puts a positive spin on it or makes it inviting. We will, as we read this chapter, the way the narrator talks about Amnon and his actions will make the narrator's description of David and Bathsheba seem delicate and reserved. But see with the narrator as he describes this, the horror that we are meant to have as we see sin's consequences work themselves out and read it carefully and read it thoughtfully and read it with a prayerful heart because I think it's easy for us to see the ugliness of someone else's sin but I think our hearts are often hardened and our spirit is dulled against the ugliness of our own sin. So with that, let's pray. Let's read the chapter. Lord, we thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. 
And we thank you that that grace and mercy extends to a willingness to confront us with the ugliness of sin and the way its consequences ravage individuals and families and nations. And Lord, as we are tempted to recoil from this chapter we are about to read, we pray that your, we pray that your word might hold our attention, that we might weigh the gravity of our sin and then be struck all the more with the wonder of your mercy and grace to us. Give us help as we read a difficult text together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And 
Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hatzor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord, the king, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Heavy text. One that has deliberate echoes of many things we've read before. What are some earlier stories that you see echoed in this chapter? The word used to describe in, in Tamar's conversation with Amnon as she tries to change his mind to hold him off she describes him as a fool, as an outrageous fool in Israel. If you remember David and his interaction with Abigail and her husband Nabal, his 
name means fool. There are some deliberate ties back to that. Abigail and David and Nabal. There the violence is prevented. Here it's not. That's one echo from, from late in 1 Samuel. It's chapter 25, 1 Samuel 25. Did you catch the many connections to the Joseph story? Yes. So her tunic, the only other time we get this description of this kind of garment is with Joseph in Genesis 37. Our English translations don't necessarily do the same thing in each chapter. Sometimes they do. And that's because we don't, we don't really know what the word means. So traditionally in Genesis 37, it's usually translated as a coat of many colors. Here it's often translated as a, as a long sleeve tunic, but it's the same word. Whether it means long sleeve or whether it means many colored, it's a special garment that designates a favored status. But this is the only two times that it's mentioned or here and in Genesis 37. Of course, Tamar's name recalls Genesis 38 with Judah and Tamar. What else? Thinking about continuing with the Joseph narrative, we have something like an inversion of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. There, after he flees, she takes hold of his garment. Here, he takes hold of her so that she cannot flee. So, in both instances, there's a protest, but several other connections. It connects with 2 Samuel 11 as well, uh, with David and Uriah and Bathsheba. If you look at especially Amnon calls Tamar, summons Tamar through intermediaries. Amnon doesn't call her directly in the same way that David summoned Bathsheba into his presence. Here, David becomes the intermediary. David unwittingly becomes the instrument who calls his daughter into his son's presence for this. And then at the end of the chapter, as Absalom dispatches men to murder Amnon, it's similar in that he kills his brother through other people, as David had done to Uriah. Many differences, but some significant and intentional parallels as well. Would this, maybe it's not, the incest here, I'm assuming that's what we're going to call this. Mm-hmm. When you start in Genesis and Jacob, and, and when did this become uh, a, a division that you weren't supposed to cross? Mm-hmm. I, that's what I need to say. Certainly by the time of the Mosaic Law. And so that becomes a question as Tamar pleads with Amnon not. It says, stop, ask David. David will not keep me from you. Well, the law does uh, at a couple of points. I've got, got that marked here. Let's see. 
Leviticus 18, verse 9, Deuteronomy 27, verse 22, both of those texts would forbid the kind of marriage that she's describing. And so the question is, does nobody observe the law in that regard at this time? Or does the royal family disregard that law at this time? Or is she just trying, you know, throwing things out there that she knows aren't actually the case as she's just trying to get him to stop what he's doing. We don't, we don't get any resolution of that. We know that she's at least doing that, but we don't know that whether David would in fact have allowed it. I find it interesting that David was unknowingly used to facilitate both the rape and the murder. Yeah. Yeah. With the murder, there's, there's a sense of correspondence in the way he becomes part of the means of how this is brought into effect. In the, in the second half of the chapter, as, as Absalom does it, there's, a, there's almost a sense in which David is trapped by etiquette. David knows that Absalom is Tamar's sister. David knows that Amnon has done this. Sure, it's been two years, but surely David is not asleep at the wheel. And he even asked, right, why should Amnon go? I'm sure it caught his attention that that brother specifically wants that brother to come. But he's declined to go. And so it would be a tremendous breach of etiquette to not allow one of the royal sons to go in his stead when he can there's also the, the slimmest possibility, and the narrator does not elaborate on this, so we don't know for sure, but David, who got mad but didn't do anything, maybe, just maybe, he sees this as an opportunity to have something taken care of that he didn't have the strength to do or perhaps didn't feel that he could do. It depends on how we choose to read it. And his sending her away complicates things. But at, at the very least, a fine and most likely capital punishment. Yeah. So David should have executed that. Yes. Yeah. He could have killed her. He could have had him. Yes. Yeah. Amnon could have been executed under the law. Do you think David was unable to do that because of what he had done? Over the next several chapters, we see David kind of collapse in on himself. And we don't get a, a, a deep exploration of what's going on with David psychologically. He knows that this is the consequence of his own sin. So perhaps he's lost any sense of, of moral weight that would allow him to act. Perhaps he's afraid of consequences snowballing if he does. Perhaps he feels that he's deserved this, and so he shouldn't do anything against it. Well, with Amnon, the first child, the first son, so he, if, if this had gone, hadn't gone this way, he would have inherited the kingship. 
but God had other plans. I understand that. But yeah. If, yeah. if you're going down the line, it would have been Amnon, then Absalom. I'm trying to remember which of the two was born earlier. And I don't remember. Kiliab is mentioned in between. So Amnon is the oldest. And then Kiliab and then Absalom. But Kiliab, like we get his name one time and then he never comes up again. And we, we don't know why. Like, did he die? I don't know. If he did, why wasn't it mentioned? But as we saw in chapter 11, how David's taking of Bathsheba seemed to form a piece of a sustained assault on Uriah. So there seems to be an element here of Amnon's targeting of Absalom is, or of Tamar is directly related to the fact that she is Absalom's sister. That becomes much clearer over the chapter as a whole. And their interaction, it seems like it's absent from the first half, like the focus is on Tamar, except there's no need to mention Absalom in the first verse. His relationship with Tamar could be delayed until much later. And by mentioning Absalom before even mentioning Tamar, the narrator is highlighting for us this, this strife and this conflict between the royal sons. Tamar is narrated here in a way that's very different from Bathsheba. She gets a voice. She acts. We hear from her. She's not able to stop what's happening, but she is able to speak and to protest as these things are being done to her. But after she comes and she's brought into Absalom's house, she disappears and, and we don't hear more of her. Uh, the, the next closest thing we have to a mention of her is later we find out that Absalom apparently named a daughter of his after his sister. She disappears from view halfway through the chapter and it becomes a direct conflict between Amnon and Absalom. It struck, struck me that Jonadab, the cousin who gives Amnon that stellar, terrible advice, is the same one who tells David, nope, it's just Amnon instead. Yeah. And uh, like, there's a way of reading Jonadab that's like, Oh, no, he just said what to do because he's sick, right? I mean, he didn't tell Absalom to go and do all of that. Except uh, it doesn't come across as well in English. Uh, if we had a highlighter, we could go through and highlight all the different places in the chapter. There's a Hebrew word, shakav, that means to lie with. Uh, or to lie down. And it's the, it's the word you use if you're just lying down at night to go to bed. It's also the word that's used to describe going to bed for sex. And it's used throughout this chapter. Some ways it's clear that it means one or the other. And in other ways, it's deliberately left open so that you could read it as one or the other. And it creates this, this kind of ominous soundtrack that builds toward the rape. Uh, and it's, it's part of what's at play in Jonadab's advice. Because you may notice, he, 
His advice stops far short of what Absalom does. But the way he frames his, device, his, his advice actually hints at the opportunity for Amnon to do what he wants to do. I like the description. He's a very crafty man. Yeah. And it's, I mean, some translations will go with wise, but I think it's not here and it, it's often not positive. So I think crafty is a much better way. So shrewd. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, he was like with both brothers, so he's yeah. just sort of a troublemaker. He has practical know-how. He's a man who knows how to get things done, right? And if you need help around your property, that means one thing. And if you've got interpersonal issues with somebody in town, that means something different. He's not a moral giant. Nope. <laughs> nope. He knows how to get things done, and he knows people who don't ask questions. The tone changes in verse 17. Yes. From Amnon. Yes. He goes from absolute love, and he changes from sister mm-hmm. to woman. It does. And notice the chapter is filled with kinship terms, words for family brother and sister, even in the act, they are clearly brother and sister. And then you're right. It's a switch flips and she's now the woman he wants dismissed. So Absalom's words to her when she comes are very curious. If you look at what he says in verse 20, So she comes weeping. It's interesting in verse 18 that the first mention of what she's wearing comes after, as one put it, all all that her clothing can do is mock. It's the clothing that the virgin daughters of the king wear. But she comes, all right, Absalom says to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Absalom seems to have a pretty good idea of what's going on. Even though he wasn't there, she doesn't seem to have had any opportunity to tell him yet. And what he says on the one hand seems to ring hollow, but I I think there's more to it than that, right? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. That seems like putting a Band-Aid on a broken artery. Like she's going to bleed out. And he's got a Band-Aid to stick on it. But her condition as a young maiden of Israel who's now been violated is she has no prospect of family, uh, which for her is also her, her security. How is she going to be provided for and taken care of? And even though the specific things that he says seem to just kind of fall flat of what she needs, his actions in conjunction with those words are to take her into his house so that she is now secure and provided for and cared for. She can't go back to her father's house. There's no husband for her to be taken into. She has been dismissed from Amnon's house. Amnon, who should have been, if not killed, then 
compelled to marry her and never allowed to divorce her so that she would always be provided for. He has kicked her out and locked the door behind her. And Amnon, her brother, who's right, technically whose responsibility it is not. Absalom, sorry. Because she should have been taken care of by David or Amnon should have been compelled to take care of her. Absalom ensures that she is cared for, that she's given a home. He can't undo what has been done to her, but he can make it so that that does not mean that she's cast out. He can ensure that she's looked after and he bides his time for revenge. He takes up her cause in that sense. It's kind of infuriating that David's lack of action toward Amnon just kind of supports Amnon and poor Tamar is again I, I mean she gets she's getting the short end of the stick by but in the idea that the men were and the women were not worth that much this point too. That's true, but this is, this is family, though. You would think yeah. that it would be a little bit more important that David treat his daughter, right? Yeah, this is, this is an important conversation, actually. I think we often read the cultural situation throughout much of the Old Testament as though there is a, a significant difference in the relative value of men and women. I don't think that's actually the case at all. There's a significant difference in the relative power of men and women. And so men are entrusted with the care for the protection of the provision for the women. And it's expected of them. But because of the nature of sin, when we often see men sinning and not fulfilling their responsibilities toward their families. Women are disproportionately affected because they are reliant upon the men in their lives for a place in the family, for the provision of food, for the protection of a home. And that in the, in the midst of, of so much ugliness is actually a beautiful moment when Absalom ensures that his sister is cared for. The fact that did marry Bathsheba. Yes. Which leads you to believe that there was some redeeming quality there that, that Amnon did not have. And yeah. surely he knew about his father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things we're left with as we read this in the next several chapters we know that this is an outworking of what Nathan said of what the Lord prophesied as, as consequences of David's sin that the Lord would not remove. We know it's a fulfillment of prophecy. We wonder along the way, how much of it we can attribute to a a failure of parenting. But we know from the outset that the Lord has decreed that this would happen. One of the things that we've seen throughout First and Second Samuel, we saw it a lot with Saul, for instance, 
is the Lord will decree that something will happen, that this will be the case. And then as we read chapters where those things come to pass, the Lord seems to be absent. He's not present as an actor. He's not there sending his prophet. He's not moving the people around like chess pieces on a board. Their free actions, though already decreed by the Lord, though already spoken of in advance by his prophet, still remain their free actions, which is terrifying to consider that the Lord could know in advance and decree to let something be. And we know from Paul's letters, we know from other places, Romans 8 is not the only place we hear this kind of word that God will turn all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That encompasses this chapter. God can, God does, God has turned Amnon's actions against Tamar and Absalom's actions against Amnon for his glory and for our good. And on the one hand, how? How could that be? And on the other hand, we see how God's glory and our good didn't necessarily mean the good of Amnon or the good of Absalom. And it meant much suffering for Tamar. Sometimes we read Romans and we suppress what we know about other parts of scripture because what we want to hear Paul say is God can work all things together for his glory and for the removal and the alleviation of your suffering. That's not what he says. He says he can turn it all, does turn it all for good, including the suffering. We do the same thing when we read Psalm 23. David says, Yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't say, because you're with me as my shepherd, I don't have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He says, even though I do, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Hard thing to remember, but it's a good thing to remember. Because if we don't remember that, If what we hear, whether it's what we've been directly taught or not, if what we hear is, if God is with me, if Christ is for me, I don't have to suffer. Then when suffering comes, we doubt God's promises. We lose our faith because God becomes like every other person we've known who's made a promise and not kept it. But that's not ever what God promised. He can use that suffering for his glory and our good. And that's a very different thing. But it's also a very beautiful thing. Because it means that that everything sin has done to us and to our world and to the people we love 
will be made beautiful. Maybe we should do Revelation next. There's a way of reading Revelation that's been very popular over the last hundred years that communicates to Christ's people that as things get worse, God will rip the church out of it. They won't have to suffer. And that sounds wonderful in a context where we don't suffer much anyway. But that has wrought all kinds of terrible things in places like China and Sudan and Iran, where deep, prolonged suffering has come. And God has sustained his church through it rather than deliver them from it. Some of those poor people who were taught that God would save his church out of it and they wouldn't have to go through it have been left wondering, does God keep his promises? This is why teaching matters. This is why we we need to pay careful attention to the text, to read it carefully, to to compare text with text with text so that we don't become unbalanced in our presentation. But if we read this chapter without Romans 8, then we wonder, is their suffering so great? Are there consequences of sin that are so dire that God can't turn them for good? And if we read Romans 8 without chapters like, 2 Samuel 13, we wonder, does God turning all things to good mean that I don't have to suffer? Or that sin's consequences are are withdrawn, this side of the resurrection, even. And either one of those things taken by themselves leave us without the means to adequately wrestle with our experience. As we reflect on, on our own sin and the sins of others and the the extent of sin's consequences and its ability to do harm. I think this is why David freezes. Because what's happening, he knows, comes as a consequence for his sin. There's another connection that I didn't point out. That's as the news comes to David, it sounds very much like when the news comes to Job that all of his children have died, that all of his flocks are gone, that all of his wealth has fled from him. But there are reversals. One of those reversals is that the news first comes and he's told all of his sons have died, but that's not the case. It's just the one. But the other difference is that for Job, there wasn't any sin to connect his suffering to. But for David, he knows exactly why. He knows what he has done that has brought this suffering into his family. The Lord can. The Lord does. The Lord will turn David's suffering to good. For David, for his family, for the nation, for the people of God but not before we see writ large in the life of his family, what is sometimes called the exceeding sinfulness of sin.
One of the things that we learn as we read these next chapters is to long for the return of Christ. To long for the day that Revelation describes as, as when the Lord wipes away every tear from our eyes. And death and dying will be no more because the former things have passed away. The chapter ends with an ambiguity. Absalom's fled. Whatever's going on between Amnon and Tamar and however David felt about it and however David failed to act against Amnon, Absalom's actions, I think, could be fairly described as done with a high hand. If Absalom were to remain in the kingdom, I don't think David could fail to act. I think the people would compel him. Absalom flees. Absalom hides out in his grandparents' house over the border. Not so far away that David could not have done something if he was inclined. Be like just over the border in Mississippi. Everybody knows where he is. Everybody knows how to get to him. But it provides a pretext for not going after him. We have this note in verse 37. It's left open and unresolved. It says, and David mourned for his son day after day. Which son is he mourning for? Absalom. Well, as as his Absalom fled, and then in the same verse, it was he was mourning. Yeah. So I'm assuming. I would assume Mm -hmm. the same verse. It would mean it was he was doing it. Yeah, I mean, in verse 36, he and his sons appear to be mourning for Amnon. In verse 37, it says David mourned for his son day after day, but, but the main subject of that paragraph is Absalom. So for which son does he mourn? And that's left, left unresolved. It's intentionally phrased in a way that leaves us scratching our head. David's largely been transparent. We've had windows into his thinking and into his soul. And here, at the same time, we're told something about him. The shades are pulled. But then in no. which kind of ties it all together. Yeah. He longed to go, to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. But that's after Absalom has been in Geshur three years. So does that mean he's been mourning for Amnon and has come to the end of a period of mourning? Or does that mean for these whole three years he's been mourning for Absalom because Absalom has been absent? This is the beginning of the birth pangs of the suffering of David's house. This becomes the catalyst for a sword being raised up within his house. But this is not the end. We know that the, the, the swinging of that sword in David's house is going to encompass murder, which we've seen. But it's also going to encompass a rival of David's taking his wives in broad daylight as a conquering successor. And that's yet to come. So we know this is not the end. But remember, in the midst of all of this, that God turns this to David's good 
into his glory. David's sin and its consequences and the suffering that entails do not get the last word. Let's pray. Lord, again, we tremble at a passage like this and in anticipation of chapters to come as David's sin and its consequences continue to wreak havoc in his household and for God's people. But Lord, how brightly does your mercy shine against a true assessment of the darkness of our sin. As we continue to peer into the consequences of David's actions, we pray that you would give us fresh visions of the brightness and the glory of your mercy and forgiveness. That as we ponder your way with such a great sinner as David, we might come to realize there's hope for us too because of Jesus. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.